Hello, Namaste. I'm Ruchira Gupta, your host for the podcast A Free Voice. I'm an Emmy-winning journalist who went on to start Apnea, an NGO which works against sex trafficking. I have dedicated my life to amplifying voices of the most marginalized people in the world. I'm also the debut author of scholastic book I Kick and I Fly. In this podcast, I will talk to survivors, activists, and storytellers who use their voice to make a difference in the lives of young people. How does an idea turn into action? How do you change a tragedy into recognizing your own powers? Together, we will examine and reimagine the world we want. Then a woman said, speak to us of joy and sorrow. And he answered, your joy is your sorrow unmasked. And this self-same well from which your laughter rises was all times filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Is it not the cup that holds your wine, the very cup that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit, the very wood that was hollowed with knives? When you are joyous, look deep into your heart and you shall find it is only that which has given you sorrow that is giving you joy. When you are sorrowful, look again into your heart and you shall see that in truth, you are weeping for that which has been your delight. Some of you say, joy is greater than sorrow. And others say, no, sorrow is the greater. But I say unto you, they are inseparable. Together they come. And when one sits alone with you on your board, remember that the other is asleep upon your bed. You just heard Tanya Gold read from Khalil Gibran's The Prophet. Tanya is a survivor advocate, an advisor to the United Nations, and also an advisor to many survivor groups on how to combat and overcome trafficking. She lives right here in the United States and has an incredible journey from victim to victor, from someone who was oppressed to a survivor. She represents the last girl to me, the person who is poor, who is female, and who is also black. All these intersecting inequalities have cut her off from access to many things while growing up. And then she overcame all those inequalities. In today's podcast, A Free Voice, we are going to find out from Tanya how she found her free voice and how she overcame all these intersecting inequalities to become the leader that she is today. Welcome, Tanya, to our podcast. Thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Tanya, why did you choose these particular lines from the prophet? So um, I believe that these lines chose me. I was having a moment, um, not it was not long after my trafficking experience um, that I was feeling or having suicidal thoughts and actually planning my suicide. And I um, had this moment where I felt like um, I just couldn't do it right because I had two kids at the time. I was a single mom and I literally was trying to plan my suicide in a way where it didn't seem like a suicide. 
So one particular day, I um, lived in a, in a in an apartment where I could go up into onto the roof, and I took a chair up there with me while my two babies slept for nap time. Um, and I'm sitting there, and I'm contemplating, and I'm talking to God because I feel like. I'm a failure at making this happen, but I realize I cannot continue to live in, in this way. Well, I'm having this discussion and trying to make a decision if I'm going to actually do this or not and actually asking for divine assistance to end my life. My, I hear my kids, uh, and so I realize that they're up. I go back downstairs and figured I'd just go, to, go for a walk to the library uh, the library is always given was always a safe haven for me, so I have the, my my two kids in the stroller, and I'm just I'm just walking down an aisle in the library, and just happened to turn my head to the left, and I see a book called The Prophet, and it's really thin, you know, it's not something that is is huge, um, but when I saw it, I go that's interesting, the prophet. And I remember thinking, you know, what does a prophet has to say to me? And when I opened the book, that is the page it opened up to. And when the first line that said, that says like, tell me about sorrow, right? I thought I can tell you everything about sorrow. What do you have to say to me? Something that I don't know, you know, what, what that's about. Like I really, and contemplating on how to end my life. And as I'm reading it, it's saying to me that the same cup, you know, that has, that has been hewn out, right. That same, same cup that has been hewn out with sorrow is exactly the same cup that could hold joy. No. So for me, that was um, my day of hope and understanding what it could mean to to hope again because i felt like as much sorrow as i as i had you know gone through in my life i would definitely i, I want to see what this could look like on the joy side have books always been part of your life and have they always motivated you in good and bad times oh yes i um have i've always been an avid reader my first job, I, I was um, sexually abused as a child and my social worker, I, um, by the time I was about 15, I think I was 15 or 16 and uh, my social worker came into the home and said, we, we need to get her mind stimulated and, and uh, you know, active in society because I was definitely prone to depression and she talked to my school counselor and my school counselor found a job for me working at a library and I lost myself in books. It was just beautiful. Which are your top five books? Oh my God. I don't even remember. I remember the very first book I read that captivated me was that book, uh, Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. I'm sure everyone knows that book. That was like, oh my God. I was written so well and I learned how to use my imagination and um, I just started using I, I, all kinds of books. You know, I was able to travel all around the world and, and, and beyond, um, you know, I, it was definitely my place um, of, of escape. And so um, there are so many books that have affected my life. 
Have you read To Kill a Mockingbird? I did. I did. I read that in high school. Um, that was a hard one uh, to read through. Um, yeah, it's hard to, it's, I am very, I'm a person who's, I'm in my mind always because um, there's a lot that has happened in my life that I actually have have seen and experienced. And so for me, I enjoy reading books that are, you know, fantasy, sci-fi. I love historical fiction, you know, um, because I need to know that there's more. And so that's what I love about art. That's what I love about, you know, writers, because they're able to think beyond that. So I'm not a person that'll sit and watch like, you know, CSI or like drama or, you know, um, shows or books that can tell me exactly what I see in the world today. You know, I need something that's going to, uh, to just, you know, take me to, to more possibilities. You started an interview with lines from a poet. Do you write poetry? I used to. I used to write poetry. That's how I um, was able to express myself to myself. And so I would write poems and I have like a library of journals um, that I can, I would always just go back to, to read in order to like inspire myself. Um, I always would write more on a positive note. So even though there were some hard things I was going through, I could always find, like I was always searching for a way out. And so writing poetry was a way that I can do that, especially when you have to rhyme and you have to make sense. And so it, um, it was very therapeutic for me to, um, to be inspired. What are you doing with those journals now and with all that poetry now? So I, um, I decided to take lines that I've written over the years and just pull them out. And so I can prepare for like a memoir, you know, something that I hope that will inspire people like I've been inspired, you know, by my own um, experiences and just thoughts that I've had to, that has really helped me get through. So that's what, and I definitely want to leave a legacy for my kids and my grandkids because, you know, the reason why I didn't want my suicide to look like a suicide, because I didn't want that to be their story, right? Um, my mom committed suicide. I didn't want that. And um, so I feel like I've worked hard on purpose to give them a different story, you know, about their mom. Is it going to be a memoir in verse? Probably. <laughs> I would love to read it. I can't wait for it. Do you have a name for it? Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. You know, when you were talking about your mother, I was just thinking that she too must have been the last girl. Was she also poor, female, and black? No, my mom was mixed. Um, she did her, you know, how everyone goes and they do their DNA and ancestry. My mom is actually, um, she is a ton of Bengali. Um, huh. and I'm from Indian. Calcutta, by the way. From really? Bengal. 
Yes. Wow. And we have no idea about our history there. Uh, a couple of my family members have taken the test and see that we have that, you know, in our ancestry. But um, we always grew up thinking that our family was Native American. Uh, we actually even have a Native American sacred uh, Cherokee site down in North Carolina. And we had a historian come and come to find out we're not Cherokee at all. <laughs> so, you know, um, so that was beautiful finding out, you know, um, what that was all about. But my father is, um, he was adopted, but by family. And, um, so I don't know if you ever heard of Gould from Gould town in New Jersey. Um, so there no, are a ton I'm of us. a girl from India. So I, you have to educate me. <laughs> well, so back, um, in the day when, you know, when folks were migrating over, uh, the uh, whites or the Anglo-Saxons settled in New Jersey and they, um, you know, built a life with Native Americans there. Um, and this is South Jersey. Um, and so that's where another part of my history is, you know, uh, the Native Americans there in that community. So um, it's a, 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 a lot. Well, for me, it's a love story. Because my what I what I learned was that my grandfather, who uh, was a gold, um, he didn't marry a native. He didn't marry a Native American or a, a person or a white person. Which th- those were the rules. He married someone who was very dark, and he was put out of the community and lost his inheritance. But you know, here we have you know my father and me and. Um, so I, I just, I just love that story because it's a story of love, you know, choosing, um, someone, you know, because of love rather than, you know, the color of their skin. That is lovely. And you have that legacy to pass on to your children and grandchildren. Um, but how, how did a girl like you who is so entrenched in the history of America, who knows this country, who, as you said, is not black, has no and you know history of slavery in the family, and yet uh, you know you were not you did not suffer from multiple oppressions or marginalization, and yet you ended up trafficked. So how how did that happen? It's, it's so hard, I'm sure, for my listeners also to understand, like. You know, we always think it's someone who's marginalized, who's beyond the pale, who's going to be preyed on by traffickers. An educated girl who's going to libraries, going to high school, family uh, she can trace back for three or four generations at least, no history of slavery. Um, You know, so how does it happen to a person like you? Yeah, well, I had a ton of vulnerabilities. So I do, uh, you know, it was difficult growing up in my community um, because for some I was too dark and for others I was too light you know so there was a struggle within the community Um, and so but although that struggle was there um, I still was a, a person who loved to learn and I I ended up uh, losing my father to alcoholism and my mom remarried. And, um, during that time, our family just became very disconnected 
from our community. And, you know, that's one thing that traffickers look for. They look for, you know, those who are disconnected, right? Um, those who are looking for a sense of belonging and those who are looking for a sense of validation. And so um, I was a part, became more a part of a, a, a Christian or church community um, during this time. And um, which didn't work well for me at all because it ended up being a cult, right? A C-U-L-T cult, right? And so, um, it, so for me, there was child sexual abuse and exploitation. There was child sex images. Um, there was physical, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse. And I had a hard time understanding my place with adults because the adults in my life were abusive and uh, there was a lot of neglect, right? And so um, when I uh, started, when I was in high school and, you know, I had the community understood because I said something like I gave voice to being sexually abused and that's something you don't do in a small community. And so I understood very early um, the challenges and the repercussions of using your voice, right? And especially using your voice to speak for yourself. So because I did that, it really um, just made that gap of disconnection with my community even larger. So I ended up getting pregnant in my, my senior year of high school, which, uh, you know, as you can imagine, was another messy thing that, that can happen in someone's life like mine, um, which further disconnected me from my community. And um, we had a senior field trip where we decided as seniors, we wanted to, um, to, to do something on our own. So we decided to go to an amusement park. And I didn't have anyone to go with. So I had a friend of mine who set me up on a blind date. And so this blind date, you know, I, I didn't have anyone to say because of the, um, just because of the dysfunction in my home, I didn't have anyone I could go back and say, Hey, you know, mom, is it okay that I go out on a date with this guy? Right. He was 28 and I was 18. Um, but for me, I was confused, like I said earlier, about, you know, the role of adults in my life. So it wasn't a red flag for me um, that he was so much older than I was. So we were on this trip to um, to an amusement park and, um, you know, he was a gentleman and um, he didn't look scary or look like, you know, what people may think a trafficker or a pimp would look like. Um, he was groomed really well and seemed to be intelligent. And I appreciated that. So the entire night he was just, um, he took the initiative on our date. You know, he bought me things. I didn't have to use my own money. He had his own car. So, you know, there were things because I was a single mom that I was looking for that I felt like he could provide. Um, just looking, you know, on, on who he was that very first night. But at the end of the night, we are having, you know, this deep conversation and 
we're like sitting on this bench and we're just kind of people watching as folks are leaving the amusement park. And I begin to share with him um, some of the things that I've already stated, you know, with you, like my um, abuse experiences as a child. And he, um, you know, said something and you'll hear me say this over and over again, because to me, this was pivotal. He said something to me that no one else ever said to me before. And that was, I'm sorry that happened to you. Mm-hmm. I see. You know, um, I felt like this is love. This is what love feels like. And it's true. Love is validating, you know, love is supportive, you know. Um, and so I had all these feelings. And in my mind, I'm thinking this is love at first sight. This is the one, you know. And so I'm I'm overtaken. I'm overjoyed. I, I mean, I, I'm feeling great. And, you know, we begin to have this relationship for four months. And as you can imagine, you know, I was suicidal. I was having, I was a single mom and I was, you know, feeling, you know, um, put out by my community. I had to get my own place. My mom had put me out. Um, I had to find my own apartment, had a car. So I was doing adult things. And it was during this transition that he was in my life and was very kind and gentle and supportive. So um, I had earned a a scholarship, uh, early child education, early childhood education scholarship at my local community college. I graduated the top half of my class, even with all the trauma. I was, you know, very engaged in school. I enjoyed learning. Um, And so I was excited about starting college. He never said anything against me starting college. He was very supportive. So as school was approaching, um, he calls me and he says, you know, I want to talk to you about our future. And I'm, I'm happy that he wants to talk about our future. And he um, says to me, I'm going to say a word to you. And I, I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind when I, when I say it. And he says the word, madam. And, you know, my thoughts go to here in America stage coaches and 1820s. And that's what I say. <laughs> I say stage coaches in 1820s. And he said, you know, good try, try again, madam. And I say, okay, well, madam is like an older woman who takes care of younger women. And I go through the whole thing, what I really know a madam to be. And he says, correct. My mom is a madam. And I'm like inside I, I've never heard that before, something so, you know, in our modern world. And I'm thinking I, I grew up in the rural parts of New Jersey, not New Jersey near New York, New York. This is New Jersey exit two off of the turnpike (laughs) farmland. And so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe the world has moved on without me and I don't know that this is okay. And he's telling me that his mom is giving him the business. And I, I just never heard of it in these terms. So I didn't understand, but I didn't want him to see that I was immature and didn't understand. So I went along with what he was saying. 
And he said that he had been watching me and he saw that I was very responsible in my age. And, you know, he really could use my help and support with helping with him, uh, the business financially. And he said he was looking for a queen and, you know, all of this. And, and I'm giving a soft yes. And as the conversation continues, he says to me, he says, well, you know, I'm going to need you to go out there sometimes because, you know, the girls are not going to respect you and you sometimes may need to show them what to do. And I say to him, I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not, I'm not a hoe. You know, that's what I said. Those that, that was my mindset about, about this. And he says, you're not. I was like, no. And he said, well, tell me how many people have you slept with? And you know, that night that I met him, I told him everything personal and intimate about me. And at this moment, this is the moment that he brings it all back, you know, in a negative way. And that's what I, you know, try to really put out there that traffickers are master manipulators, you know? And so he begins to bring some things out that I had shared with him. And he said, you know what? At least my girls are getting paid for what they're doing. So, you know, who's the real hoe? And I was shocked. I couldn't believe this is the man I, I loved saying this to me. And so he said, you know what? I'm going to give you some time to think about it. And he hung up. Now, mind you, I had to start school, you know, so for people who knew me, this was a community college. And so, you know, there were folks that had already known me, kids that I went to school with and graduated with and some professors in the community. So when I started school, I was very depressed. I, um, you know, all, I couldn't function. All the suicidal thoughts, you know, uh, begin to come back. And um, I just honestly couldn't wait to hear his voice again. And so he called me back. Um, and he was very matter of fact. And he said, so what's your decision? And I said, yes, I'll do it. You know, because all I can think about was the four months we had together and how fun that was and how I didn't feel like committing suicide, right? How I felt like he um, listened to me, you know, all of those things that we want to feel when we're talking about what it means to love and to be loved. I felt that and I just wanted that. Um, and so I ended up you know, being trafficked by him for about 18 months. Um, and it took, it was a while before I understood that he was just using me for his own agenda and his own plan. What, what actually uh, was the moment when you felt that uh, he was exploiting you? Uh, because was it all the repeated pain of body invasion or was it something which triggered off a sense of what was going on to you? Was there some particular moment, incident, or was it a culmination of things? Definitely a combination of things. I began to see the operation once I got in there. And um, he 
already had someone that was um, doing the management. He already had had this person there, this madam, this older woman who was taking care of everyone. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I, I begin to see him work with other females. They were coming in. I begin to understand it wasn't a love relationship. When we first, when he was talking to me about this and we were having this conversation on the phone, I, um, and, and I said, yes, I said to him, you know, one thing that I asked for you not to do is to hit me because I'm now I'm thinking this is real. And from what I understand when it comes to pimping and hoeing and that whole world, you know, I know that that, you know, I'm thinking this is that world. Don't put your hands on me. And he said to me, well, we don't do that anymore. That's, that's old school, you know? And I, and I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. And I'm thinking, maybe I'm thinking more into this than there is. Um, but as you can imagine, you know, over time, um, he would beat other girls in front of me. He would never beat me. Right. But he had to find ways to break me, which didn't include, you know, beating me. So when I understood that he was, um, I would see him manipulate others. I, you know, um, it, it just became more of a reality. And, and there was a moment that I talk about in my story a lot, you know, where, um, he, I, he wanted me to, you know, be a certain way or to do, you know, certain things. And, I, I really didn't want to, because as you can imagine, I'm very sassy and opinionated and, you know, <laughs> um, and so he um, had me in a front seat and he said to me um, that he couldn't use me anymore because I, I had lost some money. And so he said to me, you know, I can't use you anymore you know, and, and I'm like, you know, I didn't mean to, I'm sorry, we're having this conversation. And I'm, he said, no, you can leave. And he actually pulls in front of a bus station and tells me to get out. And we're like some way, somewhere in DC area at the time. And I go, you know, I, I don't want to leave, you know, I want to stay here that have nothing else to go back to, you know, I, I want to be with you. I want to grow. I'm, you know, we're having this conversation and, and, and I say to him, why don't you just hit me? And then he says, because you're not worth it. You're not worth me hitting you. And that hurt me because I'd seen him hit other girls. And I, I, in my mind, I'm thinking, this is easy. Just hit me, get it over with, and let's get back to what we had before. That's all I'm thinking. Those four months, like I'm holding on to those four months that we dated. And he says, you know what? I have an idea. Get out the car. And, and it was raining outside. And he says, um, go in that mud puddle on your hands and knees and ask me if you, and ask me to take you back. And there we're, we're at a bus station and we're across the street from the bus station. So people are there, people are seeing this. 
I get out, I get on my hands and knees and I, I'm, I'm yelling and I'm screaming for him to take me back. You know, and then finally he sends the other girl, you know, to come and get me and I get back in the car. And it was after that moment that things got just drastically, um, it just, it just really took a, a bad turn for me. And so I knew that any, anything that I had with him was over and it, and began to understand that it was never about that anyway. And so that's hard. You know, I still work with, um, people who are identified as being trafficked and it's hard to walk them through admitting and, and like really embracing that someone used them and manipulated them. That's, it's hard. That's hard to think that someone used you in ways you would never use yourself for their own purposes. Um, it's, it's hard to, to grasp that. Yes. It's, uh, your mind is so colonized by the experience that it's hard to be self-aware enough to even know or put words to your exploitation. I've heard that from other survivors as well. But, you know, at some point you did realize you had a free voice. You did go away from that situation and that man. And this moment was the trigger because you must have begun to think about things differently or what level of humiliation that you were going through. My question is, when did you really feel that you had a free voice? So I always knew, I just, I understood as a little girl that because of all the controlling factors in my life, I understood that it was others. Like I knew I was always free to be and to say uh, because there was there were moments that you could, as long as you performed well, right? As long as you did what the teacher told you, or as long as you, you know, played the game. And I understood this at a very early age. I understood that I had a voice, but it was it, I could only use it if others could control it. And so I I knew it, well, I felt like if I could just be an adult, <laughs> then I could really have a voice. I could really be my authentic self and say what I want because now I don't have adults telling me what to do and how to say it and controlling me. Um, I always had that as a kid, you know, you're Tanya, you're talking too much or, or Tanya. Sometimes when I'm Tanya or Tanya, you know, or, you know, Tanya, who do you think you are? You are just seven years old. You are just, who do you? But I just always knew that voice was important. And I remember um, I was always advocating. I was always that person. We were in church one time and, um, you know, on the side, the kids that we were teens, like, like teenagers, 13 or 14. And we always talked about how we wanted to go to the mall, hang out with our friends, but the church we belonged to didn't allow us to do that. So one day, uh, the pastors, the leaders of the church said, how many of you 
are, are any of you, you your kid, the, the kids, the teenagers, are any of you feeling like um, we are controlling you and you can't uh, do what you want to do and you want to go out? And man, my hand went up. I was like, yes. <laughs> and I stood up and I turned around and no one else was standing with me. And I go, no, this is the time to do it. We were just talking about this. And nope, no one said anything, you know. Um, so I just understood that and knew that that that's just me. I, I, I just, I've always been free. And, you know, I appreciate growing up in, the, in America for this reason. I remember the preamble, like we, the people, the constitution, the, you know, the, uh, of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice. And, you know, when we're talking about the pursuit of happiness and liberty and singing the song, my country tis of the sweet land of liberty, you know, even though I was in third grade or second grade, I took it literally. I took it that I understood that was for me and I believed it. And so when things didn't line up that way, I just felt like other people didn't believe it, you know, for themselves. And, but that has nothing to do with me and my belief. And I have a right to, as a human being, I have a right to. And so I, I always had a voice, I, you know, I always got in trouble for using it, even as a little girl, um, but it never stopped me. Did you ever use your voice against that man who pimped you and trafficked you and uh, colonized your mind and body? Oh, yeah. I always tell people, you know, folks like to think that buyers are nice. You know, that they're, oh, they're just having fun. No, they rape you. They hit you. They pull guns and knives on you. They... It's, it's not beautiful. And um, I remember this, um, there, there, there was this college guy had gotten, had picked me up and he made a stop and uh, some other guys got in the back seat. Man, let me tell you, you would have, you know how there's those little chihuahuas and they do all this barking because they think they're so big. That was me. I went off. I'm, I'm like, I know you better stop this car right now. And I'm, you know, yelling and but, you know, real sassy with it. And, you know, and the, the boys go, we're sorry, we're sorry. And they jumped out of the car, you know, and um, because that's that's not what we planned for. So anytime, you know, I had a chance to use my voice, you know, in those moments when I any time, you know, I've used it. it didn't always work. You know, it didn't always work, but it just never stopped me from using my voice. So you're unputdownable. <laughs> I like that. Did you did you ever manage to put that man who took you on a blind date and manipulate you into becoming this traffic person for months? Were you able to put him down in any way? No. Um well, no. I never because at the time, you know, prostitution it was a crime. And so, um, no. So when I had the, the opportunity to leave, it was actually through a police officer. Um, I, I was kidnapped or, or adult napped <laughs> by, 
excuse me, by a, a buyer. And uh, he had taken me somewhere, didn't know where I, where I was. And um, he pulled into this abandoned parking lot um, and he wanted my money. And, you know, that's something you have to fight for. Um, and so I told him, no, wasn't giving him my money and I meant it. I'm not doing this. And then he pulled out a knife and he pulled out a knife. He comes over on top of me. Um, we're in a car and, um, it just, it gets, you know, I'm in my mind at the time I'm thinking I'm going to win because this is not going to happen, but then he's a man. Right. And so there's this moment where I realize, um, he's gaining momentum and I have to make a decision. But at that moment, and I, I don't know how many survivors you've talked to or people who have been near death where they have these like divine moments, right? That's what I call it. It's like a, it's like a divine moment. So I had a divine moment where everything goes matrix, like in slow motion. And I hear a voice say, what are you doing? You had a son. And I remembered that my son was in night care. And I realized that if I died that night, my trafficker would have my son because no one in my family knew what I was doing. Not anyone. So in, in night care, I mean that the, tra- you know, the trafficker had, you know, their, their brothel had had a home and that's where I would have my son. Um, while we were traveling and it was like my, the veil was lifted, the mama bear came out and I, you know, give this guy the money, you know, and he pushes me out of the car and, you know, I'm mad, you know, I have all these, um, these, I don't know what you call it, but this relationship with God where I'm mad at him sometimes and (laughs) happy or whatever. So at this, at the time I go, you know, I'm, I'm mad at God and I I'm upset and I'm screaming and I'm in the ground. I'm crying because I have no money. I have no ID. I have nothing on me. And then I stand up and I say again, you know, I, I say God, cause that's what I, um, believe, you know, there, this, this, and I say this a lot, you know, I feel like in those situations, we are survivors or people who are in, in these, in these circumstances, we're closer to the divine, right? This is where we're close, the closest, um, because we're surviving. And, um, so I stand up and I say, just scream, God, help me. And when I do that, there is a law enforcement officer that was sitting in his car and his lights come on. He pulls up to me and he rolls down his window and he says, what are you doing out here? And I look at him because he says it like we know each other. And, um, and, and I go, what? He says, what are you doing out here? And, and I'm like, you know, and it was like, I realized that he saw me as a person and not as a prostitute, not as a person selling or buying sex. He saw me as a person and was questioning me as like a brother or a human being. 
and I just broke down and cried. Um, and he, you know, um, helped me get past, like he was working his shift and he was like, you know, I'm gonna pay for you to go get your son, you know, to get on a bus, go get your son and go home. He was kind. He was, um, just my angel or guardian or whoever you want to say, um, I know if it wasn't for him, I don't know where I would be today. I know that. How old were you when you had your son? I was 17. In hindsight, like, would you have liked to have had access to abortion at that time? I actually, um, I was on my way to an abortion clinic because that's what all the girls were doing. Um, they were having an abortion in high school. And so I found out I was pregnant and I had um, a friend of mine, she was going to have her aunt take me to, I was in Jersey, but I think I had to go to Philly or something, or Atlantic. I had to go somewhere else. I can't remember where, um, to get the abortion. And we were driving. Um, I had to stop and, you know, I had to stop and pee because you know how <laughs> when you're pregnant, you have to go often. And I had my moment. I had my moment where I'm standing at the, this window and I'm looking out and the tree, I notice the tree and the wind blowing. And I just felt this thing in my heart, like, and I'm just, I'm not swaying anyone's this decision. This is my story, right? For me, I felt this conviction that said like, who are you to, to take this life or to do this? I felt it and felt it strongly. And I had to go back out there and tell my friends and, and there, and, and my friend's aunt, after we had already driven, we were halfway there that I can't do it for me. I just, I couldn't. And, um, my son is, if I didn't have my kids, I know for sure I wouldn't be here because they were the reason I needed them for it to have purpose. I needed them to do better. I really did. I didn't know that. I didn't know that then, but my, my son was a gift. And, um, and so that's how it worked out for me. It wasn't easy. But I am so thankful that I listened to my my own heart and my own instruction, my own, you know, wisdom for myself and, and listened. You deal with so many survivors of prostitution now and of sex trafficking. Uh, you are a survivor leader. Now, when you meet many young girls who may have had to drop out of college, take a job just because they got pregnant, had a baby, uh, would you like them to have access to abortion? What are your feelings on that? So, interestingly enough, I worked at a crisis pregnancy center. I actually, oh my God, years ago, I was um, working, like doing, you know, network marketing. And the lady that, um, what I was working with, um, because she wanted to purchase something from me, 
she was a director of a pregnancy center. And I went to go pick up the, or pick, or go, I went to go drop off the products for her. And um, she had gotten sick and I couldn't find her. And we were back and forth. And so I was, um, I had already experienced, I already had nonprofit experience. I work with HIV and AIDS, you know, I, you know, under-resourced communities. I had already done a lot of this work in my life um, at this point. And so the uh, one of the, the staff members there said, hey, you know, are you interested in crisis pregnancy work? And I'm like, I mean, I don't know. You know, I can, I can help and volunteer, you know, until they find someone. But it was just so beautiful um, being there. And, and, and this is my belief on it. I, being a person of color and having, um, having this experience of being a single mom is, is something that people think about us all the time anyway. And I didn't like that. I don't like that, you know, being black, you know, and being a female, there's this, you know, bias that, you know, you know, if you're black, you end up being a single mom and dads don't black dads, you know, they're not in the home. And, you know, I, I, I strongly dislike that. Right. However, it doesn't mean that, you know, our life has to be a certain way, right. Just because I got pregnant or just because, because what I learned with talking to thousands of women working at the center, because I did it for seven years, many of them come for abortions because they feel pressure to have an abortion. It doesn't feel like a choice to me. It feels like people put pressure on them to have an abortion because you know, it's not the best time or because you're too young or you're still living home with your parents or it, that decision should be free from all of that. If I decide to have an abortion, I decide to have one. It's not because my parents are pressuring me, my boyfriend or my life circumstances or anything. It's a decision that I make myself. And that is what, what I wanted to get to you know, with, you know, girls that were coming in and feeling the pressure to abort, you do have other options. You can make an adoption plan. You can make a plan for your child. Why don't we talk about that? Why do we pretend that, you know, because I, I, I have also worked with girls and women who did have an abortion and weren't ready to make that decision, you know? They or they weren't clear or well informed about making their decision, or their abortion experience was horrible. No one talks about that, but I've seen it. I've worked with with girls on that, and I just think we need to be honest about that experience as well. I think we need to be supportive to um, women who do go through abortion and help them walk through that because you do grieve. I don't care what anyone says. So those are things that we don't talk about when we talk about access to abortion. And I know that's important. So I think, you know, 
reproductive rights, it's just not about abortion. It's not. And we shouldn't make it about that. And we should have access to a lot of choices, including abortion, but not only abortion. Yes. Very true. And that that takes me to my next question, you know, which I've been thinking about because you were talking about the life, you were talking about the situation that brought you there, how you got out, you know, everything is different. It just is a different story. It's very unique, right? And, uh, you know, uh, now that you're a survivor leader, you're also advising the Virginia House of Delegates um, what kind of advice do you give? What does it actually mean when someone says that you're an advisor to the Virginia House of Delegates? If a lay person listening to this podcast thinks about that, they've heard you, they'll wonder, like, you know, what do you actually do? Yeah, that's a great question. So I advise the U.S. government on legislation and policy and all things human trafficking related. And I also advise our state um, but, you know, on legislation and policy as well. And it's important that we have, it's great to identify trafficking, right? To say, I believe this person is being trafficked. So that's one thing. But we have to make sure that we have um, trauma-informed services for those that are identified. and so. Um, and that we have like a holistic approach to this. Um, so what that means is, you know, when we're speaking in terms of like uh, people with substance abuse or, you know, folks who experience domestic violence, you know, that's uh, that's all in its own one type of trauma. But when we're talking about those who've been victimized and sexually victimized or victimized over labor when it comes to their value and worth. Um, and, and being a human being, right. We're talking about the exchange of money, uh, exchange of money for what you can produce as a good or service with your body, right. That's a different type of trauma. So how do you empower people who have been bought and sold? And I think about that when I think about that, I think about slavery. So when we think about slavery all over the world, right. These are people who've been bought and sold. Now, how do you empower them? You don't know. Unless you sit with these people and you talk with us and you understand our needs, which are going to be different than yours. Um, I, I am inspired by Booker T. Washington because he saw that need. He saw the need to empower people who've been bought and sold because he came right out of emancipation. And what did he do? Have he had black people, people of color, come and build an education, like a school, a facility with their hands? Now that's empowering. That's not getting someone to come do it for you. It's not, it's not saying we can't do something ourselves. It's saying, what do we want? And let's come together and let's build it. Right? So that's one way. And so these are the discussions that I'm having around the table. You know, how do you empower people who've been bought and sold? Well, you need survivor leaders. 
You empower them to speak. You empower them to use their voice. You empower them to put their hands to their own issue. So those are the types of conversations that we're having. Wonderful. Uh, more power to you. And, uh, you know, I've, you know that there's a big debate going on in United States and also globally that some people say that, uh, you know, why should sex buyers be punished? Why should pimping and brothel keeping be considered a crime? After all, they're helping poor women get a job. And uh, prostitution should be termed as work like any other work and just be, you know, women in prostitution or victims of sex trafficking hardly exist if they're adult. So they should all just be called sex workers. What is your response to that as someone well, who's been in the yeah. life and experienced everything? I think that the people who say that the most are people who have not had this experience. Again, you know, that's just someone's way to say, how do we make it easy for a person who, um, how do I want to say this? So I don't want to sell something I've been victimized by. I don't, I don't want to be a part of that market. And even if I, if I was selling sex to feed my family, if I were given another option, and if I had the opportunity to take a personality test or a job skills test to really understand who I am and I can be authentic in that way, and I now had a choice, what would I do? So I, I don't want to remain a marginalized population. I don't want to remain an under, under-resourced population. So how do we change that? You don't say to, to someone who was just bought of, out of emancipation, you pick cotton really well. Why don't we just support your cotton picking, give you a business, and because that's all you can do. That's degrading. You're telling me that that's all I can do as a human being? You're telling me, no, thank you, right? I Absolutely. want a part of the American dream or whatever, wherever I am, I want that just as much as you think that you, you can have it your way. I want it my way too. So I don't, I, I am not a fan of that at all because I think it keeps a population marginalized, underserved and impoverished. And that's not okay. I agree with you 100%, Tanya. And I've devoted my whole life to, you know, trying to create a world in which no girl or woman is ever bought or sold. And uh, many years ago, when you were saying that this law did not exist and you could not punish your trafficker because of that, I worked for the passage of that law in the U.S. Senate. I went and testified and showed a documentary I made. And that contributed in the passage of the first Trafficking Victim Protection Act. So for me, it is such an honor to meet you and know how much you have used this law and moved forward and what this law would have meant at the right moment if it had existed earlier. Thank you for your work. I appreciate that. I realize it is not only my voice at the table, but it's my ancestors that have gone before me. 
You know, it's people who have been victimized, who have used their voices and was never given a platform, but they still use their voices anyway. I realize all of that. And, you know, there are so many that have come before me um, and I am grateful and feel honored that I get to share the space. And so thank you for the work you've done and are doing. And will never stop just like you. One of the things that you mention in the work that you do is that you always try to treat every person with dignity and convincing them that they matter. How do you do that? Well, I mean, because I know what it feels like to not matter. I know what it what it feels like when, you know, buyers or, you know, people who hurt you and abuse you, like... I will never forget the look on their faces, the tone in their voices. You know, um, I would just will never forget that. And that that's never okay. And I know that I'm not the only one who has experienced that, you know, and um, I want to, I want to speak to that piece, right? I want to, I want people to know that like, you're not who others say you are or think you are, you are who you think you are. Like you have control over that. I remember, you know, um, when my trafficker was teaching us how to recruit, I saw this girl that was on a sidewalk. She was walking on sidewalk and I pointed at her. I was like, oh, look, she's really pretty. And he goes, no, look how she's walking. She's way too confident. So um, no, you don't choose someone like that. You know, and I just never forgot that because now I understand, you know, as an adult who wanted to have control over her life, you know, people, if you don't know who you are, people will control you. If you're not confident and sure, like sure about who you are, people like leaders and I'm in religion, all types of schools everywhere, politics, People will always try to have you beat to their drum, but you have your own drum. Beat it. (laughs) Yes, Tanya Gold, we are ready to beat the drum and your drum too. The drum beat is there for us to hear. And my last question to you is, what does freedom mean to you? Freedom is my right. It's my right. It's because I exist, period. That's it. It's, it's, I have a right to freedom. I have a right to be me and my authentic self. I have a right to show up in every space with my ideas, with who I am, um, with transparency, with vulnerability. I have a right to do all of those things. So, I mean, it's uncomfortable for some people, but it's comfortable for me to be myself. And I have a right to do that. And when when I am not doing that, I feel like I'm giving my freedoms away. I'm giving that right away when I don't allow myself. And that's my responsibility. My freedom is my responsibility. It's not anyone else's. It's mine. And so that's that's how I, I really feel about it. And you are listening to Tanya Gold talk about freedom and how she fought for it, took it as a responsibility, and that's her drumbeat. Freedom is my right. 
and you are responsible for your freedom. Let's drum on that drum beat. Thank you, Tanya Gold. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure and a joy to share this space with you. I'm Ruchira Gupta and thank you for listening to A Free Voice. Subscribe to our podcast to get notifications of new episodes or check us out at ruchiragupta.com. The podcast is produced by Ram Devineni with Ratapalix and Bowery Poetry. Special thanks to Leela Kapoor and Anika Kothari. This podcast series is funded by the Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund, which is sponsored by the US Department of State and implemented by Global Ties US in partnership with the Office of Alumni Affairs in the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. Additional support from New York State Council on the Arts, Governor of New York State and the New York State Legislature.